0: Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and we're coming to you with the September 2022 AJT Highlights. Got four papers today. As always, Roz Manon from University of Nebraska is here joining me. And we have our um, editorial fellow this month, Celia DeFilippis, who has just started as a transplant cardiologist at uh, Columbia in New York. And so... To start us off, I'm going to go through the papers, the four papers that we're going to be discussing, and, and Roz will mention a, another paper, just not going through it, but just mentioning it because it's came from the, one of the CTOT studies. So we'll start off with um, a paper. Celia will do two papers. The first is Utilization and Outcomes of Deceased Donor SARS-CoV-2 Positive Organs for Solid Organ Transplantation in the U.S. by Jesse Schold and his group. And then, um, move into the next paper, which is organ transplantation using COVID-19 positive deceased donors by, uh, Bach et al. And Celia is going to talk about both and then provide some summary comments and we can discuss both together at, at the end of that. Then I will be discussing the paper heterologous 8026 COVID2S, which is the J. Johnson and Johnson vaccine versus homologous. And it's just basically the Pfizer-Moderna vaccines as a third dose in solid organ transplant recipients, seronegative after two-dose mRNA vaccination by Chiang et al. And then Roz will finish this off with um, a paper entitled Anti-HLA-A2 CAR-T-REGS, Prolonged Vascularized mouse Heterotopic Heart Allograft Survival by Wagner et al. And then we'll finish it up. So, um, Celia, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast and we look forward to hearing your uh, discussion about these two papers.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, It's great to be here and I'm excited to talk to you today. So, I think, you know, since the first date of the national emergency in March 2020, I think our thoughts as a transplant community at large regarding the use of COVID-19 positive donors for organ transplant have really dramatically shifted. As you may remember, in the beginning, the initial guidance documents from the OPTN recommended cessation where possible, certain transplant activities to reduce exposures to the OPO and to conserve hospital resources. And our processes of testing donors have also changed significantly over time. Um, And notably, in more recent months, the use of donors with a history of COVID-19 infection has been increasing, um, particularly in the case of recipients with high weightless mortality. There have been some smaller reports that have emerged with only really viral transmission being documented when some COVID-positive lungs were used for transplant. And so today, I wanted to talk about two papers um, that really present much larger numbers with respect to the use and outcomes of these donors for transplant. As mentioned, the first article by Jesse Schold and colleagues and the second by Matthew Bach and colleagues. Both reports use National Registry data and include data across various organs in the United States. So uh, first, Schold used SRTR data from March 2020 through August 2021. And deceased donors were considered positive if any test for COVID was positive, recognizing that some donors may subsequently have had a negative test prior to organ recovery. And the primary method of testing was PCR testing, uh, although antigen testing was not necessarily excluded. And this included liver, kidney, and heart transplants. Some notable findings were that the positive COVID tests were more likely among Black and Hispanic donors than white donors, which may speak to kind of the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on certain racial and ethnic minorities. And although there were no difference in recovery rates between uh, kidneys by donor COVID status, liver and hearts from donors who tested positive for COVID-19 were significantly less likely to be recovered for transplants. And for kidney, the discard rates were nearly twice as high for kidneys from donors that tested positive for COVID-19. Although over the study period, the proportion and absolute number of COVID-positive donors used for transplant increased over time, and that was seen for each organ. When we think about graft survival at six months, that was similar regardless of the donor COVID status for all organs, which is very encouraging. And really, the authors emphasize persistent underutilization of these donors, despite acceptable short-term outcomes, recognizing that, you know, as we know, donor organs remain in short supply, but also recognizing that we will need longer-term data with respect to outcomes. So now shifting gears slightly to the second study, Bach used a similar study period of March 2020 to September 2021 with OPTN data. Some notable differences were that only one COVID-19 test result was included in their data set, so it's unknown whether that was the first or the most recent, and all of these test results were PCR without antigen tests. In contrast to the prior paper, this analysis also included the additional kidney pancreas transplants and thoracic in addition to liver, kidney, and heart. Each recipient was matched with the donor who had COVID-19 results available. And analyses were actually done by a per graph, not a per patient basis in the case of patients with dual organ transplants. So they similarly found an increase in donor COVID testing over time, again, specifically by PCR. Um, But given that they had excluded recipients without a specific donor match and only included those where the donor had an NAT result available, the final cohort was actually smaller than the Schulte cohort. And so during the study period, 187 kidneys, kidney transplants, 57 liver transplants, 18 heart transplants, five kidney pancreas transplants, and two lung transplants occurred using COVID-19 positive donors that were included in the subsequent analysis. Encouragingly as well, when graft survival was studied, there were no differences in actuarial survival between those who received a COVID-19 positive donor and those who did not. And this remained true even after multivariate analyses that adjusted by organ, uh, recipient race, donor race, mechanism of death, donor distance, recipient age, and BMI. And their median time since transplant follow-up was 83 days. There were no deaths that were clearly attributed to COVID-19 infection, although two were unknown. One was related to sepsis and one was related to respiratory failure. And when we think about how we can apply these data to kind of clinical practice and donor selection and optimization moving forward, um, I would just also mention that given the limitation of the data sets, information was not available regarding donor or recipient vaccination status, cycle threshold data, or any COVID-related treatments that may have been given in the post-transplant setting, although other single center reports kind of Reported on their experience uh, and their protocols. And so I think these are really exciting data and well needed data, especially as we look forward and the pandemic continues for
2: us to think about how we can best use uh, these donor organs. It's always good when you're analyzing US practices using two different avenues that you get sort of similar answers. So that's really reassuring. I mean, I think. When you sort of look at the, the rate of positivity, if you go back and think about March to June, you know, like places that were overwhelmed by COVID, just they weren't even working up the donor. And in fact, the initial guidance was if you're COVID positive, don't call us. And I think like in New York, as you may recall, because you were there, is it was so overwhelming that the OPOs were just sort of, sort of in a, in a status. They were trying the New York OPO was working very, very hard, but. They, they were getting hundreds of calls that they couldn't really, they couldn't respond to because it's, you know, you state legislation that you have to call but to activate that system. But I think we got better at what we were doing. I know we were all pretty upset about the lung cases, but I know that the quality of the organs, at least for kidney, seemed quite good. Did they go into much detail about the lack of, util- I hate using the word discard, and I know donor families hate it, so I'll try to integrate a different term, the, the lack of utilization of those organs that were positive. Did they mention why it was so much higher in kidney than in the other organs, or speculate on why that was? You know, I think that's a, a
1: great question. Um, I will say that, you know, when looking at the characteristics of the grafts, from or I guess they were not graphs yet, but when looking at the organs that were being mm-hmm. considered for transplant, really across the organs, the actual um, there were very few characteristics that differed with respect to the those that were COVID positive and those that were COVID negative. So, for mm-hmm. example. You know, they did look at the KDPI, and I'm not a nephrologist, <laughs> so I, and I won't claim to be, but, you know, those median values were actually similar between the COVID-19 and the COVID-positive donors. Mm-hmm. So I would suspect that it's less a quality issue and more just potential concern or perhaps lack of comfort still at this point, rather than necessarily something that was clearly tied to the quality of the organ that was being mm-hmm. considered.
0: I guess you could sort of make a um, sort of a supposition that maybe like for instance the liver is a large vascularized organ maybe there was more concern about using a liver that in a covid positive donor than in a than in a kidney as you know a smaller organ or or maybe not as affected by um, a circulating virus of course the lungs a different story i see here there was just two out of, two out of 269 that were used and that kind of makes sense being the primary source of infection. I was curious since you're a uh, transplant cardiologist, what you what you take on the heart data here, or is it just, it's also pretty small numbers also. And, but what's, is the general practice now is to still consider, you know, these donors in, in most cases, if you have somebody who's a donor that's positive.
1: Yeah, I think there's still a lot of variability with respect to centers. Um, in that regard, we actually um, did a survey uh, looking at this in terms of transplant centers and um, transplant providers, and I think there's still a variety uh, of you know variety of approaches to it, depending on whether the donor tested within twenty one but may have a subsequent negative test versus someone who's actively considered viremic at the time of recovery. But I think, you know, we have similarly emerged. There have been some single center reports recently reporting their experience. I know in one experience, I think they did, uh, there have been a couple of eight to 12 here and there, uh, heart transplants that were done um, and one of the common approaches was that all patients who received a heart from a COVID positive donor did receive pre-exposure prophylaxis with Evershield subsequently. Mm. And so I know that that, that was one approach. Um, I think overall, the data is becoming more and more comforting with respect to taking a COVID positive donor. Uh, but I do think there's still um, variety based on uh, center's level of, of comfort.
0: Great. Okay. Well, thanks, Celia. So I think we can move um, good segue into how to how to protect our recipients from from getting COVID and um, going back to sort of um, uh, vaccinations and how we can improve our current vaccination success in the organ transplant population. So this dovetails into the next paper, which is uh, mainly from the Hopkins group and NYU. That uh, is led by Teresa Chiang, the first author and correspondence to Dory Segev and, and William Werbel at, at, at Hopkins and NYU. And this is, um, this paper is essentially comparing uh, heterologous vaccination versus homologous vaccination. And, and this, this goes back to the idea that perhaps mixing and matching different vaccines may actually inc- Uh, theoretically increase antibody response and protection against COVID-19, although that has not been clearly proven in the general population and not well-studied in the organ transplant population, except for a few studies with some limited follow-up. And so this report here is looked at a high number of patients, 377 solid organ transplant recipients. The majority of them, most more than half of them, were kidney, and then a mixture of liver, lung, heart, and uh, multi-organ. And looked at those who received, uh, and these were all patients who were seronegative by the um, uh, essentially the Roche and the Euroimmune uh, enzyme assays, zero negative after the first doses of the MR of the mRNA vaccinations. So, um, either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccination and looked at those who had gotten a third shot of the mRNA so sort of the homologous population versus a third shot with uh, vaccination with the Johnson and Johnson which is not an mRNA vaccine it's uh, of course an adenovirus vector vaccine vaccine and looked at their antibody responses either zero convert both zero conversion but also the titers that developed by two different assays that i mentioned that developed after the third vaccination either with just the continued mRNA the homologous or the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccination which would be heterologous and so you know the numbers of those who received Johnson and Johnson were smaller it was 40 compared to 337 getting the mRNA vaccine the patients who received who were in either group either the heterologous or the homologous were a little bit different and so that uh, study tried to control for these factors by doing a sensitivity analysis, but the Johnson and Johnson recipients were actually slightly older and more likely to have a kidney transplant. So potentially they were um, already sort of biased towards the negative here in terms of response. so that that comes into play a little bit later when we look at the um, the actual results and the timing of the second to third dose, uh, was actually shorter 90 days than 168 days in the mRNA. Although, of course, all these patients were, were zero negative after the second, uh, dose. So, um, you can kind of look at them similarly in that way. So the results, they, they actually did a nice study of all of these patients at one month, three months, and six months post D3 or dose three. And similar to a pri- uh, prior study, the one month Response was really no different between the groups in terms of who became zero positive. It was 63% in, in J and J and 52% in mRNA uh, vaccination. And the, the, those who developed high titer were similar 29 and 25%. The data starts to change at three and six months. Whereas and I can just go to the six month data of those who were followed. So the numbers that were tested at those points though does does whittle down a fair amount because there's this is a sort of a, a study that was essentially done uh, retrospectively of samples that were collected so they they didn't get all of those patients uh profiled but at 6 months 88% of the Johnson and Johnson recipients and 59% of the mRNA recipients were seropositive and that was statistically significant so they were uh the Johnson and Johnson were 1.4 Fold more likely to be seropositive, and interestingly, the the high titer response was also seen in a a higher percentage of 59% compared to 21% Johnson and Johnson versus mRNA. So, 2.6 fold more likely to develop high titers. They did uh, all sorts of sensitivity analysis, and um, they did some subgroup analyses, and the results looked pretty similar they also looked at vaccine safety and adverse reactions um it really didn't see any difference there were some patients that had acute rejection but didn't seem different between the two and so um ultimately it was an interesting study i think it obviously limited by small numbers and it wasn't like these patients were randomized um to getting you know one or the other and um so there's and there are differences in the, in the populations for sure, in terms of numbers and also, um, clinical factors. But you would sort of suspect that the, uh, or hypothesize that the, the J and J group should not respond as well, um, being older, but, uh, they actually responded better. So a little hard to say exactly if, 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 if this was the effect, but it does seem to have some compellingness to it, which is, That the further you go out from the time of vaccination, these, these antibody responses can seem to increase and the titers can also go sort of gradually go up over time that particularly that was seen in the J and J group. And they didn't do any kind of functional assays or cellular responses. They also, this was not in the Omicron phase of where they, um, they could look at sort of neutralization of, uh, of Omicron virus through specific assays, but you know, I think the data are are what they are, and I think they're it's interesting, and it kind of makes biological sense that one would have a higher response to a different vaccine. I don't know if it's just a, a different vaccine or it's the actual vaccine that they're getting, uh, which is a uh, you know a different um, technology. Hard to say. Obviously, a randomized study, which is very challenging to do, of course, would answer a lot more questions here in terms of uh, matching the groups better and having an equivalent number undergoing uh, different vaccines over time. But I like this study. It, it makes me think about if I had a patient asking me which one should they get, and I might say that this not a bad idea to to go a different route The um, for your boosters. Um, I wonder too if I think there are just not that many patients who started off with J&J who where you may switch over to the mRNA vaccine uh, is this a, is this a matter of just switching vaccines or is this really effective the J&J vaccine we we don't know any uh, any comments on from the group here or how you would interpret these data
3: well i'll be honest i i'm not routinely checking titers
0: yeah for sure
3: um so i wouldn't know who to tell go out and do the other vaccination at all. I certainly would say that though these humoral responses have been recorded a million times now, but although very carefully by this group in particular, you know, we've published data that show that even in the aberrant responses, these people are still, our patients are still getting a benefit. I mean, we're ameliorating, they may still get COVID and there's COVID breakthrough, but uh, those cases show lower rates of Severity, death, MACER, MACE, AKI, the kind, you know, through all the organs in particular, not as good as regular folks that are not immunosuppressed. So I don't really know where to put this right now in terms of, uh, because patients ask all the time. Now they, now the question from the patient is, should I get the crazy fall shot that's the very, right? What's the variant? What do you think? And, and I got COVID anyway, so who cares? Well, you're still alive, and you didn't reject, so I do care. I do think there's benefit. I just don't know how to put this. You know, if this, if you would, if we had talked about this paper ten months ago, six months ago, I think I would have had a different feel. But I don't know yeah. what do you guys do. Are you guys measuring titers in people? No, mm-hmm.
0: no, no. Yeah, it just makes me sort of think that probably a heterologous approach. If it if it were if it isn't harmful to the patients, yeah. which I don't yeah. think it is, it make kind of makes biological sense, and why sort of why not? But that it, it isn't. It's sort of based on looking at this and and sort of biological plausibility. But yeah, no, I, we're not checking antipod. I don't know, Celia, is your program doing that? Yeah, no, yeah. we're
1: not. We're not consistently doing that. There was a period before initially when. You know, Evoshel was kind of more limited in supply, and we were checking uh, antibodies before uh, to kind of determine some patients who may be more likely to benefit. Um, mm-hmm. But we've really kind of stopped doing that, and I guess my sense too is that there isn't really good guidance on on what to what to make of of that. But I do think it is interesting because I remember early in the pandemic, I feel like when people got the J&J first, we said, okay, we'll mix it up this time and get an mRNA and you get that combo. But we haven't really thought about it the other way around in that, okay, you got your mRNA shots, now let's mix it up. So I I agree with the, uh, you know, the kind of double hit theory that those mechanisms are kind of working together synergistically but i definitely agree with what was mentioned about kind of the antibody response and and what to make of that and what that means clinically in terms of protection
0: i just think it's it's complex to for a system and we were the the three of us and 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 many others are at very large transplant centers to be logistically getting antibody data and then using that for <sighs> vaccination or or have you shelled and it just it's complicated especially in a changing environment with different variants yeah. to to implement that so i think it it's and and also we're not sure exactly if the the antibody titer and the and the uh, the seropositivity or the antibody titer are, are really meaning you know differences in protection that's kind of we haven't gone that route but it but i but in this group has done that the hopkins group uh pretty routinely and it's nice to see some published data on on the center that does that routinely. At least to have this this out there because it does come up still. And I my my guess is this this will probably be referenced uh, moving forward when we're considering different types of vaccines. Yeah. You know, but I I think it's it was a one. when we all off.
2: start having to do that monkeypox vaccine.
0: There you go. Yeah,
2: where sure. um you know we're sort of saying oh it's in this small population of patients. And yet now we're hearing about contact and maybe aerosolization. So Mm. I'm always thinking ahead now of the next bad news. But I think (laughs) in the fall, you know, the fall will be mRNA based is my understanding. And my understanding also, of course, I get all my news on NPR, not medical, but it is medical. Uh, They said that the initial determination was based on urine neutralization that they'll do they'll actually do a murine model. I don't know how they're going to do this because I thought the mink was the one that got COVID, but they're going to do neutralization studies and it won't Mm. be done in human. And they're just going to adapt to the FDA, the prior mRNA specificities of standard COVID, anti-spike, whatever, and then just sort of carry over the EUA to do the new vaccines, which I thought was interesting. But so we'll have more to talk about on the next. Yeah, well, that's the the way to, uh,
0: that's, the way to move it towards person, you know, precision, yeah, yeah. The, precision vaccination against this specific current variants, just like was done in influenza many, many, many years ago.
2: Right, so. right. All
0: right, Roz, do you? want well, uh, I'm gonna up? I'm gonna
2: bring us home, so to speak. So okay. I'm gonna change gears entirely away from COVID and talk about a basic science paper that I hope I don't murder by Johanna Wagner in Kesey Tang's lab at UCSF studying the role of anti-human HLA-A2 CAR T regs, in a vascularized mouse heart transplant model. Um, so I know that these, that I don't think on this podcast, we've talked much about these chimeric antigen receptor targeted Treg, T cells, but essentially you can use regular T cells that have been engineered. Their T cell receptor is specific in the case of hematologic malignancies towards the malignancy, and and so there's been a lot of adaptive immune augmentation in hematologic malignancies, and there's been tremendous interest for at least five years about doing the same thing for Tregs, regulatory T cells that suppress immune responses, and there's some kind of odd things about Tregs. I mean, Tregs are CD4 T cells, so they really function off of class two, and they look at indirect presentation and so this paper is engineering the T cell receptor towards a class one antigen, and it's a human antigen in a mouse model. So we're going to be talking about these humanized mice. And and this kind of makes sense when you think about that where is class one is expressed. It, it's typically not expressed. And when you have, um, it's on B cells, class two in humans and in inflamed um, epithelial cells of the kidney, for example, you can, ex- you can express it. But when you're thinking about uh, Antibiotomy rejection, or for example, or cellular injury, you'd want an endothelial target. So it's kind of cool. So, anyway, these, they have engineered these CAR T regs specific to HLA A2 antigens already, and they've studied them already in non vascularized grafts, specifically skin grafts in very immunosuppressive mice and shown that they, there are just sort of these uh, genetically deleted skid mice on another weird background. And they've also been studied in a xenograft versus host model. And some of the problems of interpreting those studies are that you can get, a, a the cells can recognize mouse antigens. And so you get some of these weird responses that make it difficult to sort of discern if the, if the Treg is doing anything and I and I know there was a paper in skin grafts that showed a beneficial effect in prolonging skin grafts, but those were naive mice. They weren't like people which are sensitized. So this model provides a little bit more of excitement in terms of translation and moving it forward. The model is just a, a heart transplant model into the abdominal cavity, and they measure function by palpation and the strength of the palpation, uh, the strength of the heart beating, uh, and it indicates whether the graft is functioning and as the beating becomes less intense and ferocity, then you kind of downgrade it. So there's some subjectivity here. And I did a lot of heart transplant back in the day, a while ago, and I actually used to do EKGs on mice, which is another story because you could see prolongation of PR and QT intervals uh, as a predictor. Anyway, using these CAR Tregs against A2, they show some very nice in vitro studies that show appropriate activation an appropriate suppression in the context of A2. And I'm not gonna get into that, but I think it's to set the paper up to indicate the animal studies. So in vivo, they take what are called B6A2 mice. So the mice express A2, human A2, they're on a black six background and they transplant them into B6 mice. So the mouse only difference is a mismatch to human A2 and those hearts are rejected in about three weeks. And if they infuse just random Tregs from another mouse, they prolong rejection a little bit, about another week to about day 35. But if they put these constructed A2 Tregs that are specific, they can extend graft function by 99 days. And in figure three, they show some nice histology, which shows sort of like amazing resolution of inflammation, almost to the level of this in genetic animal. They tried, you know, the histology, even though there was declining function function, doesn't really show rejection, and that was sort of a, a weird thing. And we can talk about it in a minute, but I'm not sure why that is. Certainly, the histology doesn't seem to match. It doesn't look like fulminate rejection in any way, or chronic vascular injury either. Like a, uh, you can get a a, a, cl- um, a vasculopathy in these mice too, but it wasn't apparent. Um, they tried doubling and quadrupling the dose. They didn't really make any major effects uh, with that. And interestingly, when they use congenic markers that you can mark the T-cells with just based on breeding, whether it's thy 1.2 or CD451, they don't find the cells in the graft. They do in an earlier time point with the highest dose can find them in the draining lymph node and in the graft, but that's like a day four, but they don't see the cells sticking around. They then encouraged by this actually do a more mismatch model. So they Breed these B6 mice, black 6 mice, onto a BALB C background. So BALB and black 6 are completely different. BALB is H2 of D and BALB 6 is H2B. And so, um, when you put these into uh, a B6 mouse, the B6 mouse is going to recognize, uh, the BALB background is bad, just so to speak, and the A2 is being inappropriate. And so that kind of graph rejects even quicker because you have a full now antigen mismatch between the recipient and the host. And when they added these CAR-T regs, they could advance the um, survival by a few days, which was kind of depressing, but they manipulated the model a little bit more based on some other studies. And so they injected the cells around day seven and they gave rapamune, they gave an mTOR inhibitor. The other studies, they didn't use any immunosuppression. And with that, they were able to extend survival out to about 28 days. So they went from 10 to 28, which I think is phenomenal. And again, when you look at the histology in figure four, it doesn't look like terrible rejection. I mean, you see some inflammation, but there was clear functional failure. And so um, I think this study is important because one, you know, you're doing a vascularized model, which is more, you know, this is what humans are. They're not getting skin grafts. They're getting vascularized grafts too. It's great that they use the heart because there is so much vasculature in, in regards to thinking about rejection mechanisms, I think hearts are more immunogenic than the kidney, especially in mice. If kidneys are weird in mice. You can get prolonged graft survival. So they used what I think would be a, a more stringent model, vascularized. You know, they targeted these Tregs to a class one antigen, not class two, and they seemed to respond, but, and they advanced the model. They used a very mismatched model. I don't know why these grafts lost function and. You don't see the T-regs in there. One, one thought they had was that maybe the rejection is so advanced, it's running away, is how they put it, that in the absence of immunosuppression, you can't do anything. And so maybe there's just a threshold of which these T-regs aren't going to work. And maybe if they had tried other cocktails, maybe they would have had even more prolonged rejection. They also mentioned that class two on these T-regs can actually trigger activation of the T-regs themselves, which I didn't realize that... These t can get perforin and granzyme B and become cytotoxic. So that may be one thing. And there's a lot of fundamental interest in maybe making them towards class two, but the technology hasn't really been developed. And maybe they just needed additional dosing. Maybe they had to give t over intervals of time. I looked at the, the histology. I am not great with, I mean, mouse hearts. I haven't looked at it in a long time. I can tell you it's not cellular. You know, it didn't look like antibody needed injury either. They didn't mention that. Um, whether there was maybe um, anti-class 2D, for example, antibody, at least on the picture that I saw, which is again, small, I, they, and they don't mention it. They actually show you a vessel and it doesn't really look um, in the combination like there's fulminate, you know, ABMR, but I would have anticipated that they had thought about that. So kind of a cool advancement, um, which is finally sort of coming up to, well, are these going to work in people? And that's the million dollar question.
0: Yeah, I know that this um, CAR-T regs are being looked at in uh, early phase clinical trials. Uh, I know in liver, there is a, a company that is manufacturing these and there's going to be a, an initial initial trial for just kind of like tolerability and, and uh, make sure sort of nothing bad happens as is usual with one of these initial studies. Nothing uh, bad
2: happens to the liver, right? It just goes on and on?
0: Well, not the liver, but you know, like immunosuppressive complications. Right, you know, from right. giving T regs. But they're they're supposed to be specific for the graft. So and Yeah, and, and again, you know, graft.
2: we did, you know, our group did some of the C studies with with Dr. Tang and, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Vincenti. And, you know, we never they we deterior, you know, deuterated the T cells and try to mm-hmm. track them. And it, it's just hard to find them. They're not like sitting around proliferating. In the tissue, but it was interesting to hear that whatever beneficial effect they had in changing the microenvironment, it seemed to have a delayed effect. You don't see them there, but they certainly and and there's no mention about IL10 levels and TGF beta. They didn't go into that specific detail. So I, I I suggested the reader to sort of read it just so that they have a sense when the community is talking about more clinical studies that they have sort of an interest. And, cool. And, and, and did then, you want to
0: mention the yeah. The, the... Yeah. Uh,
2: so there's a, a longer article we didn't get to. Um, we had a lot of articles this month, thanks to Dr. Fang. Um, but this is She Know It All. This is the CTOT-20 lung study. Um, this was a study that was a prospective study that was observational, looking at multiple factors in lung transplants for the development of chronic lung allograft dysfunction. And I've spent my career looking at the kidney and haven't figured it out. But these guys might figure out why lungs sort of have this progressive graft decline and basically what they found is that at the time of uh Bronkerville lavage and biopsy that they had plasma levels on 720 samples out of 185 patients and showed a, a strong correlation of plasma CXCL9 and CXCL10 uh chemokines associated with allograft injury and allograft rejection and more so when they did multivariate analysis the levels actually were somewhat predictive so statistically significant as a risk factor for developing clad. So um, not only did this seem sort of diagnostically associated, but a predictive biomarker in patients, and that's not been shown. I mean, I think that's a pretty novel finding. Also nice in other ways, because some of us have been interested in looking at urinary levels of CXL9 and 10 as rejection biomarkers as well. So here the lung... I came tissue. from the
0: uh, from Peter's Another C. T. O. D. study study of uh, CNI withdrawal in kidneys, right? That didn't work out so well. I remember it was stopped early, but they did detect elevation.
2: Yeah. So, you know, if you're a lung person, this is a really important paper. If you're not, but you're interested in biomarkers, just a really great study with Scott Palmer and John Belperio who were involved in it and a host of many others who contributed. So we don't have time to go into it specifically, but worth a mention. I
0: was going to say I just was wondering when the our field is going to move towards these towards um agents that are blocking these you know uh chemokines and the sort of those pathways um because it it seems like now we have you know a couple different organs where these these are these cytokines are these chemokines are increased in rejection. Mm-hmm. I mean I uh, I just I, th- I think it yeah, it's nice to have a, a marker, but maybe this is a target, a therapeutic target that should be looked at. And in, in addition to everything else,
2: you know, and it's certainly, you know, we've gone on like lesser evidence for things. I can't say which that we've been neutralizing things based on animal studies or A few patients, and it looked like it worked, but I I think there is compelling data. And it's interesting to see the levels of elevation in these patients. And it's plasma level, it's not like BAL washings showing an elevation. So, um, very nice study and uh, great, nice for methods, um, just kind of a nice collaboration. And again, you know, a benefit of the NIAT CTOT trials.
0: Great. Thank you, Roz. And thank you, Celia. I think this was. Really nice discussion about these um, high-impact papers in AJT, and we look forward to next month's October edition. Take care, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.